Hear the word of the Lord from Galatians 6, verses 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Rob Spikestra, and I'm one of the uh, elders here at Sacred City. The opportunity this morning to start a new series on change and how, how we change. Early in my pastorate um, at an evangelical free church in Nebraska, I started attending a yearly pastor's conference sponsored by Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis. If you don't recognize that church or the name of that uh, church, you might know the name of their now retired pastor, uh, John Piper. Now, if you don't know who he is, um, John Piper identifies himself as a pastor theologian, emphasizing the importance that he sees as a pastor that he needs to not only go deep theologically, but he also needs to go deep pastorally uh, with his people. He understands that the calling of elders or pastors has this kind of this dual role. And uh, as a result, he's had impact. He's written more than uh, 50, 50 books to this aim including you might hear of Desiring God or Don't Waste Your Life or Reading the Bible Supernaturally. So I, I attended those uh, pastor uh, conferences simply to kind of refuel for those dual roles. Now, each conference had probably three to four speakers, of which John Piper was just one, and he only spoke once. But at the end of every conference, they would have kind of a question and answer time where the panelists, or they would, the speakers would be panelists, of which then uh, the attendees could go to an open mic, they could ask a question, and then they could hear answers from the different, um, from the different speakers. Of all the questions, of all the question-answer sessions that I attended, I think I attended probably about eight times, I remember only one question. And the answer that, in this case, John Piper answered. The question was, is there anything happening in our world today that at times causes you to question your faith in the message of the gospel? And if so... What is it? John Piper answered, the one thing that causes me at times to question the validity of the gospel is not so much what is happening out there, but rather, and then he kind of pointed to his own chest, but rather what is happening in here. The slowness of change in my life. He said, I thought my, at my age, and I think he was probably 60 at this point, he said, I, at, at my age, I, would, I thought I would be a lot more mature in Christ than I am. 
He was lamenting how slow gospel change seems to be in our hearts and in our lives. Well, the next five weeks, like I said, we are going to be exploring gospel change. How is it that we are changed, or better, maybe how is it that we are transformed uh, into the image of Jesus Christ? And so today, my task is to be looking at its slowness. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 6, and let me read it again for you. And I'm going to add one verse at the beginning and, and add one at the end. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 reads this way. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let me pray. So Father, we pray, help us right now. We are dependent wholly and fully upon you to be working through your Holy Spirit into our lives the truth that you have from your word. And so our prayer together, Father, is that Christ would be exalted, that we would taste just how good he is. And that this taste would then enable us, Father, to move forward in the changes that you are doing within our lives. So have your way, we pray. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ who made this moment possible. Amen. What we find in this passage here is that gospel change is many times very slow. But it is always fruitful work. Gospel change is many times slow, but it is always fruitful work. So first of all, we need to answer the question, what is gospel change? What do I mean by gospel change? And the way I want to do this is I want us to look what it is not, and then we will look at uh, what it is. Now, change in of itself implies that we are no longer satisfied with the status quo, that maybe perhaps we're frustrated or uh, concerned about where we are at, and that all is not right in our world. Perhaps today you are here, and it's in your own life, and you're thinking, it is not right within my own heart. Perhaps uh, your heart is not right with God. Perhaps your actions are not in line with what you believe. Perhaps it is with a relationship. uh, All is not right in a particular relationship that you have. Or perhaps as you look into the world, it is a particular slice of your world, your neighborhood, maybe your workplace, your city, There's just a sense, heavy sense that all is not right in the world. Now, this is not surprising given what the Apostle Paul uh, said to us in terms of uh, the irreligious or even the atheists. When he writes in Romans 2 these words, he writes, for when Gentiles, now we can think of Gentiles this way, that the irreligious or atheists, or another way of saying it is, we might say those individuals never darkened uh, the door of a church. He says, Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. 
They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. All is not right in our world. In that reality, our natural tendency is to do one of two things. The first is, try harder. And this is called self-righteousness. And that's exactly what was happening uh, there in uh, the churches in Galatia. There was a group of individuals called Judaizers, and they were claiming uh, the name of Christian. They were professing Christ as their Lord and Savior, they were claiming to be followers. They were gathering like we do today, and even some of them had risen to places of teaching, but they were claiming that more needed to be done than what was done on the cross of Christ. And so they were saying, you need to work harder. You need to be trying harder. You need to become like us. They were Jews. Certain ceremonies and rituals needed to be followed, and particularly circumcision. So as Paul is looking out at, at these individuals who are responding to the fact that the world is not right within them uh, or outside of them as well, uh, to go to more righteousness, self-righteousness, he called it simply following the works of the law. In the face of not being right in the world, try harder. They were so per persuasive that even a number of the apostles actually fell into their thinking for a time. When all is not right in our world, our response is to try harder. But the second response is, just change the standards. Redefine the terms. We call this being unrighteous. See, the conscience over time continues to demand that we change our thinking or change our ways. And when we discover is, is that if we try harder, it's possible we just get to a point where we recognize it's impossible. I cannot do it. And so what we then do is then we begin to redefine the terms. We begin to change the standards, change them in such a way that then we can be happy, that we can get out of this, this conscience. So we ignore the God-given conscience, change those standards, redefine the terms. I become the standard for what is right and wrong. I defi define the terms and what I think will fit into what pleases me. Sex outside of a marriage, out of marriage covenant. Yeah, that's fine. Marriage is no longer defined. It's between a man and a woman. Gender is whatever I feel like it is at the time. Success in life. I'll define that as my position and my salary. My happiness, I define that as most important. And on and on we go. We change the standards and redefine the terms to fit what pleases us. And now look at our passage. Do not be deceived. The word deceived is planao, where we get our word planet or 
wanderer. When the, when the ancients would look out on the night sky, they would see the fixed stars, but then there was these strange stars that were kind of moving around, and so they called those the planano, the, the planets. They seemed to be aimless. You couldn't predict them. They were just kind of going all over the place aimlessly wandering. Well, the Galatians were in danger of going astray, of wandering aimlessly by either trying harder self-righteousness or by rejecting the standards, redefining the terms, unrighteousness. And we are no less in danger of self-righteousness or unrighteousness today for even in, than in Paul's day. For matter of fact, as we get closer and closer to the uh, end of time, uh, we are told that things are going to get worse, not better, in terms of uh, running towards one or the other. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them there, 2 Timothy chapter 3. So 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul warns Timothy that as the days are drawing near to the end, he writes there in verse 2, he says, For people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here's what's most disturbing, verse five, having the appearance of godliness. The Judaizers, they looked like they were the ones who understood scripture. An appearance of godliness but denying its power. Look down to verse 13, and he says, they will be evil people and imposters, and they will go from bad to worse, deceiving, there's our word again, deceiving and being deceived, being led astray and leading others uh, uh, to others astray from the true gospel. And so we can be deceived, we can uh, be deceived by thinking that somehow uh, the good news is, the gospel, that's what gospel means, good news, that the good news is, is that all, all you need to do is you need just to try harder, or you may come to a point and say, I quit, unrighteousness. I'll define the terms and the standard. <laughs> but either way, both appeal to our sinful, soul-destroying pride. Remember that in the garden? What was appealing to what the enemy was tempting them towards as he's appealing to their pride, their desire to be independent of God. And so the self-righteous says, you know what, uh, God, uh, I can do it. I can beat this on my own. Or the unrighteous say, you know what, God, I don't care what you have to say. I know what is right and wrong. I will define what will make me happy. And we become a law unto ourselves and we determine what will make us right with the world and we do this with sincerity. But sincerity is not the test for truth. 
If you're still there in uh, 2 Timothy, uh, continue on there as Paul is writing to Timothy in the mix of uh, these who are being deceived and are deceiving. He says, verse 14, but as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have, uh, and your, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, showing the way we should go. For reproof, showing us where we are off. For correction, how do we get back on? And for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is essential that we know and submit to God's word. Otherwise, we are going to be ripe to be led astray into self-righteousness or into unrighteousness. Now note the seriousness. Go back to our passage. Note the seriousness of being deceived. Back to our passage. Look what he says. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And see, the word literally means to turn up one's nose and to sneer. When we reject the gospel by either self-righteousness or unrighteousness, what we are doing is that we are sneering or we're turning up our nose to God as if somehow we know better than God. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now, thankfully, you don't have to be a good gardener. You don't have to even be able to keep a plant alive to understand the principle that he's now giving to us here. Most likely somewhere along the way in your younger years, you planted a bean seed in a white styrofoam cup or maybe a Dixie cup. You planted the seed, you put it in there, you watered a little bit. A week later, what happened? Something popped up. It was called a bean plant. That's how God, the creator, set up the physical world. You plant a bean seed, you get a bean plant. Simple as that. And so he is saying the same thing in terms of uh, our, the moral and, and spiritual uh, laws of the world. As a creator of the universe who determines the laws that govern our physical world, so it has been, he has given absolute universal moral and spiritual laws. Whatever you sow morally or spiritually, you will reap morally and spiritually. Nobody's outside of that rule, those rules. And yet somehow as simple and as easy as you and I can understand the little bean plant, somehow within us morally and spiritually, we struggle to understand that somehow we can't set the rules. And so we set our own rules thinking that somehow we're going to be outside of it. I think as you reflect upon that, you recognize just how sin sick we are. That as simple as it is to understand what God has done in terms of our physical world, somehow we think that we can do something differently when it comes to morally or spiritually. You might want to live independent of God's 
gospel by trying harder or redefining the terms. And so you turn up your nose at him, but in the end, whatever you sow, you will reap. You ignore gospel change at your own peril, both quantitatively and qualitatively. So let's look at verse eight. Uh, Read with me, verse eight. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. So look at, first of all, the qualitative peril. If you sow in the field of your flesh, either righteousness or uh, self-righteousness or unrighteousness, out of the self-centered spiritual and moral soil, you will reap corruption. It is what you find at the bottom of your crisper drawer, that cucumber that was so crisp, and then you begin to dig under there about a week later, and what is it? It is is mushy. Mushy cucumber. It's what you find at the side of the road with roadkill, a decaying body being consumed by worms. Life sowed to the flesh, either self-righteousness or unrighteousness, simply spoils. Your life is spoiled. Your relationships are spoiled. That is the qualitative peril. The quantitative peril is implied from the next contrasting uh, phrase there when he says, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. The quantitative peril of sowing to one's own flesh is an eternal decay. And that is why Jesus described hell as a place where the worm does not die. So, If self-righteousness or unrighteousness is not the answer to my world that is so messed up, what is? Well, uh, it seems to be there in verse 8 a clue. We must sow to the Spirit. So what does that mean, sow to the Spirit? I want you to turn again in your Bibles, turn to First uh, Peter chapter 1, First Peter chapter 1, a little bit further deep into uh, the New Testament, First Peter chapter 1, and we're going to begin at verse 22, Peter's writing, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere uh, brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And now look at what he's going to do. Uh, how do we do this? Well, why do we do this? Because or since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So there's this seed that God has given to us, and it is in his, the word of God, and it is an imperishable seed. It's one that cannot be corrupted. It's one that cannot be decayed. It cannot be decayed by the world around you, nor can it even be decayed by you in terms of your uh, fleshly nature. He compares it to our seeds, <laughs> for all flesh is like grass, our messages, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But look at this. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news, gospel. Here's the gospel that was preached to you. 
So then he goes on and says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Look at this, verse three. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And there's the message. (laughs) The seed is the message that the Lord is good. Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly, describes the work of the Holy Spirit this way. He says, the Spirit takes those words of Christ and interiorizes them at the level of spiritual individuality. Now listen to this. He writes, the Spirit turns the recipe into the actual taste. So again, look at what Peter says, verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So how is the Lord good? What's the message? Or what's the recipe? What's, What's the message of the gospel? Well, here's the message. Jesus Christ is good. Or we might say, Jesus Christ is the good news. It's not just a message, an idea. It's a person. Jesus Christ is your good news. To all that is wrong about the world, he is the gospel. See, Paul's letter to the Galatians is a defense of the gospel. And he's, he's having to wrestle a little bit, help him wrestle a little bit with the law and the relationship of the law and the gospel. And so going back to uh, Galatians, let me just read for you in the middle there of Galatians chapter three. In verse 10, he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. The whole reason we are having a series on change is because every one of us recognize I haven't abided by all the law. We all know we're already dead (laughs) and cursed. Now it is evident, he writes, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So the recipe of God is this. The recipe is this. God, the second person of the Trinity, did abide by all things written in the book of the law. So in one sense, we'd say, well, that's why why he must be good. He obeyed the law perfectly. Well, yes, true. But that's not exactly what Peter's talking about because he's talking about taste. He's talking about beauty. He's talking about a sense that we sense that there's something really good about him. Well, the the second part of the recipe is that when he died on the cross, he took the curse for us. That's good. (laughs) And that's when we say he tastes good. Give me Jesus. (laughs) This is undeserved favor. We call that grace. Jesus Christ is the good news. Taste that he is good by repenting from self-righteousness, by repenting from unrighteousness, and believe 
Matter of fact, he even says that at the end of chapter three, he says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. Believe. The one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit, he says there, reap eternal life. And so qualitative, we get an imperishable life and quantitative, we get an eternal life. Oh, Holy Spirit, turn these words into actual taste today. So believer, look at verse nine. So let us not grow weary of doing good. In other words, let's continue to fight the good fight of faith and kill the sinful tendencies within us. Let us continue to persist in prayer for others. Let us continue uh, to uh, serve those who fail to acknowledge our service. For the second part of verse nine seems to indicate that we are tempted to quit the gospel if we don't see change. Gospel change is many times slow work. And in its slowness, we can grow weary. And I think it's here where Paul's use of the analogy, the agricultural analogy is most impactful. See, if you, if you sow in the soil of the flesh, most times you will quickly reap what your flesh desires. So you begin to think about self-righteousness. So uh, self-righteousness has the immediacy, which is very tempting. If I try harder and I succeed, huh, look at me. <laughs> and I become smug in my self-righteousness. And that was what was happening there to some in Galatia. They had started well by believing the gospel, but in their fight for change, they were returning back to the law. They were trying harder. So that in Galatians 3.1, he says this, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? <laughs> are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? I mentioned earlier that... I guess I think it was in my introduction, actually, that we came here about five years ago. Right before I came here, I was reading this book called Sharing Your Everyday Faith Every Day by John S. Leonard. And this is what he wrote, and that's why this place became a place that felt right. Um, let me just read it for you. It's a little long, but let me just read it for you. Hopefully it's helpful. He says, we mistakenly see the Christian life like a two-stage rocket. The first stage is Grace. We're quick to offer grace to non-Christians and speak of forgiveness of sin, but once someone has embraced the gospel, we move them onto stage two, discipleship, or rather our version of discipleship. This second stage is powered by works and pietistic laws. In stage one, the message for non-believers is God loves you unconditionally and stands ready to forgive you of all your sin. The message in stage two is you'd better work hard practicing spiritual disciplines and, improv and improving yourself if you want God to keep loving you. Grace gets us off the ground, but we stay in orbit by our own works. When you live under this false understanding of Christianity, the joy that you felt when you first became a Christian disappears. Instead of rejoicing in God's love and forgiveness, you either live under the condemnation that you're not doing enough and have failed the Lord, mistakenly believing that God cannot love someone who has performed as poorly as you. Or you just live a lie. 
The lie would be that you're performing at an acceptable level for God, or at least feel you're doing more than others, and that ought to, be, that ought to mean something. When we understand the gospel as a two-stage rocket of grace and works, we cannot help but become like the Pharisees in the New Testament. Therefore, we're not very good at evangelizing others. Our Lord described the Pharisees as those who travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. To many of us, we are just like the Pharisees. We have separated the message of the Christian life into grace and law. When we begin with grace, but perfect ourselves with law, we become angry, judgmental, critical, and just not nice people. And we don't make good evangelists. We cannot share something that we have long since forgotten. What you and I need most is the same thing our believing friends need. We need grace, repentance, and faith. In other words, we need the gospel. <laughs> well, the other response of believers um, to the slowness of the gospel change is to return to unrighteousness. Consider the immediacy of satisfaction and sowing to the flesh. For example, there's nothing more satisfying to the flesh than being able to deliver a sharp, painful, sinful response right in the face of someone who's just slandered you. Ooh, doesn't that feel good? And some in Galatia were returning to unrighteousness. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Or you have this, uh, this list that you're probably familiar with. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And Paul is not saying that you don't have to have all of those. He says if you have one of those and one of those characterizes your life, he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You don't need to, again, know anything about gardening to understand that weeds are easy to grow. <laughs> the corrupt soil of our sinful nature is the perfect consistency for weeds to crop up overnight. And this is in comparison to the work of the Spirit in what the Spirit is doing is reconstituting the soil of our life. So in farming or gardening, or now, as we're thinking about spiritually growing, changing, in due season, we will reap. So again, look at the exhortation, verse 9. So let us not grow weary of doing good. So how do we endure? How do we get to a place of not giving up? Well, we need to view our seasons through a gospel lens just like our Lord. One last passage and we'll be done. One last passage, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. 
Beginning at verse one. So how do we endure, how do we not give up in this slowness of the uh, gospel change? Well, just like our Lord, we need to have gospel lens. Let's see how he had gospel lens. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which cleans uh, so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, he viewed the cross through a gospel lens. And we we know that because what's he say? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Or another way of putting it is he interpreted the events of the cross through a gospel lens and that gospel lens helped him to see that there is joy through this cross. And what is that joy? Well, that joy is found in how he is identified there in uh, verse two. He's enjoyed as the, uh, he's described as the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So he endured, number one, he endured the cross because it enabled him to be the founder of our faith. That is, he went down into the horror of death and plunged out through the other side in order to provide a limitless supply of mercy and grace to anyone who would believe in him. Anyone who gets a taste that the Spirit of God is taking that recipe and you get this taste, yes, the Lord is good. He says, you taste him, you will be saved. Enduring the cross enabled him to be the founder of our faith, but also enduring the cross enabled him to be the perfecter of our faith. See, the Christian's faith is weak. It's flawed, it's fickle. We are daily failing to be the change we want to be. But Jesus Christ is the the high priest of all high priests and is now, according to uh, verse three of chapter 12, he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Well, why is he sitting down? Because the work is done. There's no more work to be done for the cross. If at the cross, it it was all done. Nothing more that we need. He is seated because there's no more work to be done so that the work on the cross was sufficient for him to be a limitless supply of mercy and grace to people who daily come to him with their failings. And that's us. (laughs) Jesus wore gospel lenses in order to endure the cross and so now he calls us to do the same thing. He calls us to bear our crosses laser focused on the joy of Christ's sufficiency for us and then for those in whom we may be suffering for. Bear your cross. You're praying for the 1,000th time after praying 999 times for your unbelieving family member. Do it laser focused on the sufficiency of of the cross. Bear your cross, laser focused on the joy of Christ's sufficiency and being Christ to your coworker who mocks you. Bear your cross, laser focused on the joy of Christ's sufficiency and serve your children who, see, who can't seem to even muster a simple thanks. 
Bear your cross. Laser focus on the joy of the, the sufficiency of the cross and love your, your spouse who shows little or no love back. Bear your cross, laser focus on the joy of Christ's sufficiency and continue to be on mission to your neighbor, even when you don't feel like there's any hope there. To your friend, to your city. Bear your cross, laser focus on the joy of Christ's sufficiency, resisting temptation, drawing near to God and trusting his way to, that his way is better than your way. That knowing this, he says in our passage, in due season we will reap. Yeah, gospel change is, is slow work. But gospel change is always fruitful work. God is always doing a fruitful work in those in whom he has saved it is guaranteed by his word. It is how God has set things up in the universe. The one who sows the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And in due season, we will reap. Gospel change is always fruitful work guaranteed. So verse 10 is the application. So then he writes, as we have opportunity. And literally, this is translated, so then as we are in a season. So it might be a season of planting seeds. So plant seeds. It might be a season of cultivating. Continue to cultivate. It might be a season of harvest. Harvest. Whatever season God has you in today, he then says this, let us do good to everyone. For the church is made up of all kinds of people, poor, rich, middle class, young, old, Democrats, Republicans, all ethnic groups, white collar, blue collar, educated, non-educated. Let us do good to everyone. And then he writes, especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, the gospel is what's brought us into the family together, a family relationship with one another. You know what? We are all here, if you're in Christ, adopted. Brothers and sisters, heirs and co-heirs with Christ. We are all in various places of weariness. Over the slowness of gospel change in our lives and in those in whom we are on mission to, so we need one another. And we need to help each other carry our crosses. Gospel change is many times very slow but it's always fruitful. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We, we don't see, Father, what you see. We, we, don't, we don't see the work that you are doing. But give us faith, Father, in your word. It tells us that you are always working. You are always working for those who are yours. And so, Father, we pray, help us today again taste how Jesus is good. So Father, as we take this Lord's Supper, we're reminded once again that Jesus on that night when he established it, he said, this is, he took this bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Father, we remember again that he took our sins in his body. He took the curse for us. And then Father, he took that cup uh, and he said, this is my blood shed for you, a, a new covenant, a new promise, one based upon your cross. So Father, as we again taste this supper, remind us, oh, how good our Lord and Savior is. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.